0: hello all glad you're here listening to dingers and dunks uh since it's father's day week happy father's day to all the fathers stepfathers grandfathers great-grandfathers and the moms of fill both shoes so on a personal note uh just uh, finished up week two of the new job and it's going great i feel that golf season is uh, golf season is in full swing and uh, going to hopefully start getting into some baseball games of the local team, uh, this week as well. Um, so I got a fun fact and I got a did you know this week. Uh, the fu- the first thing about this fun fact is it's a little personal, um, fun fact is if you're too good at fantasy baseball, the league you're in will create a rule just for you to then limit your greatness. So this brings me to my fantasy baseball league, uh. Yeah, so apparently if you make too many transactions, even though there's an unlimited amount of transactions you can make in a week, uh, it upsets the other guys because apparently they don't take the time to keep track of their fantasy baseball team like I do. Um. So anyways, I was making like, I don't know, three transactions a day because basically I was streaming pitchers. Like to me, that's not a big deal. Like... My draft was Rizzo, uh, Juan Soto, Machado, Tatis, Otani. You know, I drafted offensive players first, and then pitchers, I drafted Hader and Chapman for closers, obviously, and the rest of those was going to stream, so I didn't really care. I mean, I even had Jazz Chisholm on the team at one point, but traded him away, and so far, that trade has not worked out too well for me. But it is what it is. You win some, you lose some. I also drafted Javi Baez and Byron Buxton. Both released due to not producing. Apparently, you know, you got to actually be healthy to produce. So, anyways, a few weeks back, we're in week seven. And these guys that I'm in with, you know, first year playing this league, new guy. I understand you're a little intimidated by the new guy that's making 123 transactions through the first seven weeks. It is what it is, bro. Um, no, nobody on my team is really untouchable. Uh, everybody's for sale. Uh, I'm basically, you know, I don't get attached to players as a fantasy owner of my fantasy teams. I don't get attached to players. Everybody's everybody's tradable. Everybody's expendable. If you're not producing for me, see ya. I'm moving to the next guy. I'm like an NFL owner on running backs for crying out loud. That's how that works. Okay. So I mean, even in my fantasy football leagues which it's a what 14 week regular season i think and then i make over 100 transactions and that's in three different leagues so yeah fantasy baseball i'm gonna make a lot of transactions especially when i'm streaming pitchers. unfortunately these guys like i said didn't appreciate it so i felt like i kind of got i got jock peterson out of the whole deal um tommy fam with the slap heard around the world how i felt one sunday night when text messages start blowing up so they created a rule to where you only can have five transactions a week not let's limit the number of pitchers you can throw in a week because that would make the most logical sense which i brought that point up to them like if you don't like the number of transactions a week to five that's kind of ridiculous their point was well you have 10 bench spots i'm like i don't care if i have 10 bench spots or not how would we just limit the number of pitchers? Because the week that I lost, up to this point, I only had one loss. And that week was the guy started 49 different pitchers. And his excuse was, well, I was just trying to prove a point. Like, okay, thanks, bro, for proving your point. Like, maybe you should do that every week then. I don't know. You seem to do it against me, for crying out loud. So, anyways, since this whole week seven rule change, I am now one and two. Which is a little irritating, because I lost one week by a point and a half. Freaking jackasses. So, um, yeah. Uh, Needless to say, this will be my one and only year in this league. Uh, unless I get made commissioner next year, which, that'd be pretty sweet. Because then, guess what? It's unlimited transactions again. So, yeah. But that's okay. I'm going to make the playoffs anyways, because uh, I currently have a five-game lead over the seventh place team of this 10 team league mind you where six teams make the playoffs yeah so it's all good and hey if you guys are if any of you guys in this league are listening yeah i'm gonna win it bro enough said guarantee it joe Namath, super bowl three guarantee i'm winning the league all right and now to my did you know of the week okay so this pertains to the definition of a hit okay Everybody know what a hit is, but we all hear that one coach. We've always always had that one parent that says, "Hey, Timmy, a walk is as good as a hit." Well, in my view, a walk's not as good as a hit because a hit you can hit a homer, bro. Hit dingers all day. Swing for those fences, fences, of little Timmy and little Johnny's out there, and even little Caitlin's and Carly's and all you little all you little rugrats playing little league baseball. Hit, swing for the fences because you are only young once. As I'm turning 40 next month. So. Coach says. Walk is just as a good hit. Well. In 1887. That was true. <laughs> for, for that season. Anytime you walked. It was counted as a hit. Tip O'Neill batted 485 that year. 485. That was with his walks included. Okay. So. In the 19 in 1968, Major League Baseball formed a special Baseball Records Commission and ruled that walks in 1887 should not be counted as hits. But then they decided to reverse this decision in 2000. So they reversed the decision in 2000 saying that stats which were recognized by each year's official record should be should stand even if they were proven incorrect. Well as for Tip O'Neill's four eighty five batting average, um, most everybody else, you know, lists his batting average at four thirty-five without the walks, which he still would have won the batting title that year. So of the now defunct American Association. So that's not a big deal. The controversy here is the Cap Anson and Sam Thompson batting average award. Because Cap Anson batted 421 with walks included, and Thompson batted 372. Now, Anson wouldn't have won the batting title if walks weren't included. Thompson would have. So, I guess you guys can decide uh, who should win that piece of batting title history in the National League. Um, and thanks for the fine resources of Wikipedia. Um, don't always believe everything you read on Wikipedia. Just some. Like this. Okay? So, appreciate Wikipedia for bringing the stats. Now, let's do the... I I love these little segments. Like, you know, I feel like I'm bringing out a little special history. A little more history into the into the episode for you guys. Um, if you guys have any thoughts or want to comment about it, uh, email me. One guy... With a mic at gmail.com. I'm openly available to emails. Follow me on Facebook and shoot me a message. One guy with a mic. Follow me on Twitter. One guy with a mic. Follow me on TikTok. One guy with a mic. Hit me up on Twitter or uh, Twitch when I'm on that. I haven't been on that for a couple months. So, I mean, I'll be there watching my buddy Sal, but that's about it. And maybe my, my buddy now, Big Bear, Bear Pig Gaming. Got to golf with him yesterday. That was pretty awesome. Full-time streamer here in the local area. You know, got a little, got some few tips from him. So, yeah. So, anyways. Back to this day in history. And the award this week goes to June 23rd. For the simple fact that June 23rd is apparently known for no-hitters. So, if you're going to throw a no-hitter, you probably should throw it June 23rd. Because June 23rd of 1917, Babe Ruth gets one out of the 27 needed, right? He then throws a punch at an umpire and is ejected for the game after he gets that out. So in comes Ernie Shaw, who then retires the next 26 batters for him and Ruth to combine for a no-hitter with the Red Sox winning that game 4-0 over the Washington Senators. Now, we move up to June 23rd, 1971 I'm a numbers guy So it's a little freaky that June 23rd, 1917 And June 23rd, 1971 With 71 and 17 reversing one another We have another no-hitter This one by Rick Wise of the Phillies He no-hit the Reds And He hit two dingers And drove in three runs In the 4-0 win Alright, now The last one's not a no-hitter but, um, he got he got screwed over by the umpire. It was the Montreal Screwjob, if anybody guys understand wrestling terms. Uh, that was Re- Brad Hart and Shawn Michaels, FYI. So anyway, June twenty third, nineteen ninety four. Bobby Witt, not Bobby Witt Jr. For you recent uh, baseball fans, but his dad, Bobby Witt, was a pitcher for the Oakland A's. Okay, so. Bobby Witt. Oh, and what's so funny about this? What's ironic about this is this game took place against the Kansas City Royals. Just a little heads up on that. So anyway, Bobby Witt in the sixth inning of a perfect game loses it due to a blown call by first base umpire Gary Cedarstrom. Greg Gagne, of Minnesota Twins fame and now playing for the Kansas City Royals, was incorrectly called safe on a bunt single. Now mind you, it's the sixth inning so, I mean, granted, it was a 3 nothing game at the time, so, I mean, you could technically say bunning for a hit there wasn't against the unwritten rules of baseball. Maybe it was the 8th or 9th, and yeah, but the 6th, not so much. So, the the second baseman scoops it to the first baseman, and the ball beats the runner to the bag, beats the runner to first, and he's called safe by the first base umpire. And then Witt and the first baseman and Tony Lewis are all arguing about this with the first base umpire. And then the the home plate umpire finally comes out and breaks it up and says, get back to work, apparently. So Witt went on, would go on to finish the game with 14 Ks and that one hit in a shutout. I think we should probably rectify that to make it a perfect game, but... Or put a little aster- asterisk next to it. You know? Per- put an asterisk next to it and call it good. Alright? I mean, and I think we've we've done that with uh, Maris' 61 because he hit it in 163 games. Whoop-de-doo. Um, we, we've we done that with Bonds, I think, right? Because he's, he's allegedly juiced up. So why not this guy? Alright, so now let's get to this week's topics, shall we? We are celebrating men's college basketball... Since it's the seventy-fifth anniversary, okay. We're also celebrating the twenty-plus career, the twenty-year career in the WNBA of Sue Bird, arguably probably one of the best point guards basketball has ever seen, men or women. Okay. So the question this week, this week for College World Series, is: Can Oklahoma, in it, only its tenth appearance in the College World Series? Pull off the impossible, like what the Oklahoma women's softball team did at the women's college softball World Series. As of this recording, they already beat the sixth-ranked Texas A&M, who then went on to beat Texas. Um, And then, so, the men's college World Series has been played every year, but 2020, since 1947. Okay, so you really can't say every year, but for all you wordsmiths out there, they were like, you can't say every if it wasn't actually every. Like, all right, bro, I got gotcha. you. That's why I put the exception in there. Okay, so 1947's championship game was played between the Yale Bulldogs and the University of California at Berkeley. It was played June 27th and June 28th in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yale and California each had to win a district tournament and one of two regionals because at the time they only had two regionals. A uh, notable Yale player that year was George uh, former president George H.W Bush um, and the Cal, Cal Berkeley won it. and then in 1949 it was pl- or 1948 it was played in Kalamazoo. Michigan again and again Yale was there with George H.W. Bush on the roster Um, and they played against another California team USC USC won the title game and won the title in three games and that was the last time Yale made an appearance and it was the first of 12 titles for USC so and then in 1949 the tournament was moved to Wichita, Kansas and expanded to four teams that would play that weekend the, over those two days uh, in a double elimination tournament. Kind of what we have today, except now it's eight teams. Um, the teams in this tournament included St. John's, Wake Forest, Texas, and USC. Oh, uh, Were the teams with Texas and... So then Texas and Wake Forest played in the championship game, and Texas prevailed, marking the first of six titles. And this is also the first year um, they recognized a Most Outstanding Player Award, and the winner was Texas first baseman Tom Hamilton. So then in 1950, the tournaments moved to Omaha and played at Johnny Rosenblatt Stadium, also known as Omaha Municipal up until 1969 I think uh it was located well I'm not for sure if it was located next to this in 1950 however um as I grew up it was always located next to the Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Rosenblatt was there until 2010 before it was before it was replaced with TD Ameritrade ballpark in downtown Omaha Now called Charles Schwab Field. 1950 was also the first year the field expanded to eight teams featuring Alabama, Bradley University, Colorado A&M, Rutgers, Texas, Tufts University, Washington State, and Wisconsin. The championship game was Texas versus Washington State with Texas winning again. So there you have Texas was also the first back-to-back champions as well. In 1958 all tournament team was picked for the first time with the winners being pitchers Doug Gillick of Missouri and Bill Thorne of USC. Catcher was Hank Coleman of Missouri. First base was Sonny Siebert of Missouri. Side note, Sonny Siebert remains the last AL pitcher to hit two home runs in a game. Second base was Mike Castona of USC, Keith jeez, of Holy Cross, shortstop was Fred Scott of USC, outfield included Ron Fairley of USC, Marion Taft of Missouri, and Marion... Winnegar of Western Michigan. In 1999, the tournament was expanded from 32, 32 teams to 64 teams, the entire tournament that is. In all, there have been 29 different winners, ranging from big schools like USC and Texas to small schools like Holy Cross, Coastal Carolina, Wichita State, and Pepperdine, who each have one. And Texas and LSU have six as i said usc leads all with 12 and texas has had has made the most experience appearances with 36 followed by miami with 25 and tex and miami has 20 it has four championships arizona state has 22 appearances and five championships oh sorry yeah, Arizona State and FSU have 22 appearances. Arizona State has five championships, while Florida State has a big zero. Been there 22 times and have yet to win a championship. Uh, USC has 21 so, has twenty-one appearances. So, heck, if USC is uh, making the College World Series, they're probably going to win it. Players such as Bonds, Clemens, Troy Gloss, Alex Cora who is coach of the Red Sox, Nomar Garcia-Para, Deion Sanders, Dave Winfield, Mike Schmidt, all have played in the College World Series and multiple other major leaguers, like Mark Pryor and Mark Apple, even though I don't think Mark Apple really made, really made the major leagues. And then you have Roger Clemens, who has won a College World Series, a major league, ba- uh, a World Series, and seven Cy Youngs. He wasn't even named. He, even though he threw, what, threw nine innings the championship game in 1983, he still was not the considered the outstanding player the player of the tournament, nor was he named on the all-tournament team. Calvin Schiraldi Calvin won the Most Outstanding Player Award. Um, most recently, Daz, Dansby Swanson uh, is the most recent College World Series winner and World Series winner. Justin Turner did it the year before. Uh, Terry Francona has a college world series title and a most outstanding player of, of the tournament, uh, in 1980. And then he won a world series as a manager with the Red Sox. And then there's Ed Sprague. I know not a lot of people know about Ed Sprague cause he played for like, I don't know, four years in the major leagues. Maybe, I don't know, maybe more than that, but he did win back to back college world series titles in 87 and 88. And then he won back-to-back World Series titles in 92 and 93 with the Blue Jays. Now, his first World Series with the Blue Jays, he appeared at two at-bats, and one of them was a game-winning two-run home run in Game 2. And then history was made this year at the College World Series as, the, as for the first time since the field weeks expanded to 64 that... No seeded team would win in the first round. And for the first time in 23 years, all four first games were decided by at least four runs. So hey, if you're ever in Omaha in June, check out the Men's College World Series. Because it's just awesome. And all my stats was brought to you by BaseballReference.com. Again, I'm not sponsored by them. I'm not associated with them. I just like using their website. And Wikipedia, of course. But that's some or the other. So, there's been a lot of great history in the College World Series. It's going to be another fun week. Can't wait to see if Oklahoma can pull it off. Boomer sooner, baby. All right. Now, let's talk about Sue Bird. And how Sue Bird has to be considered one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Like, it has to be. And for sure, one of the best women's basketball players of all time, and probably one of the best point guards, male or female, all time. She has won four NBA titles in three different decades. She was a 12-time WNBA All-Star in three different decades. She's been on the five she's been five times all first team WNBA, three time all second. She's been a three-time assist leader. She's a two-time peak performer. She is listed on the 10th, 15th, 20th and 25th anniversary teams. Now mind you, that was only 10 players, 15 players, 20 players and 25 players chosen for each of those teams. Okay. She's won a Commissioner's Cup. She's a five-time Russian National League champion. She's a five-time Olympic gold medalist. A four-time FIBA Cup winner. She's got one FIBA Cup bronze. A five-time FIBA Cup gold winner, mind you. And a one bronze. She's got five League championships. Two Europe, C- Europe Super Cup championships. She's a two-time NCAA champion. She's a three-time Nancy Lieberman Award winner. She's won the Wade Trophy for Best Female College Basketball Player. She's won a Honda Sports Award winner for Best Female Athlete, only given out to 12 athletes. She was AP Women's College Basketball Player of the Year. She won an ESPY for Best Female College Athlete. She's won Naismith Awards. She's been a Naismith Award winner. The U.S. Basketball Women's Association named her National Player of the Year. She was an AP College Player of the Year. Oh, I guess I said that. She's Big East Player of the Year. She was a New York State Player of the Year in high school, where she also won a state championship and a national championship. She was a WBCA All American and New York Daily News Player of the Year. At UConn, she tore an ACL her freshman year and then would go on to be number 24 on the 1,000-point list, number 2 in assists all-time, 7th in steals, 1st in 3-point field goal percentage and free throw percentage. She won three Big East championships and three Big East regular season championships she compiled 114 and four record at UConn and then she's gone on to play at the WNBA level where she ranks top where she ranks first in seasons played which this is her 20th games assists with 3048 and mind you they only play 36 games a year minutes all-star appearances with 12 uh, turnovers. Which she has like almost a three to one assist to turnover ratio. She's second in three point field goals, third in attempts. She's fourth in steals with six hundred and eighty seven. She's seventh in points scored, and she's also held a front off p- position with the Denver Nuggets. Like she has contributed so much to the game to the women's game of basketball that the only other female athlete that I could find that was remotely on her level or above was Deanna, Deanna Taurasi. Okay. Sue Bird is just amazing. She belongs in the base basketball hall of fame. She has been, she's an inspiration to should be an inspiration to not only female athletes, but also male athletes as some of her numbers have been put that she put up are easily comparable. If you expand them to an eighty two game season, she could easily average twenty two twenty two points and, you know, ten reb ten assists a game. In an eighty two game season. Um she was it's just unbelievable at what she has done for her career. There is she has more gold medals on the um for basketball than any other olympic athlete besides Deanna Taurasi who has five as well um she was a flag bearer in the tokyo summer olympics as well um so yeah like here's her career averages 12 points per game okay this is in 549 games started and 549 games played all right she's got 12 points per game she's got 1.3 stills per game 5.6 assists per game 2.6 rebounds per game shoots 85 percent from the free throw line 39 percent from beyond the arc almost 40 percent from beyond the arc 43 percent from the field and she's placed 31.4 minutes per game. Wow. In her championship seasons. Granted, again, they only play like, it's one series. Like it's not, which I think, you know, women's basketball players should play a little bit longer, maybe expand that to from 36 to like 40 games a year. But I mean, she's just unbelievable two-time EuroLeague All-Star and a five, like I said, a five-time EuroLeague champion. So she's on the Yukon Ring of Honor for players of all time. And we should be celebrating Sue Bird and we should be celebrating Albert Pujols as well. I mean, this is Albert Pujols' last year and the teams that aren't, um, given Albert Pujols, one, probably one of the greatest players we've ever seen play in baseball. And mind you, I'm not an Outer Pools fan at all. I mean, he's a great player, but I'm just not a fan of his. So, but that doesn't mean team shouldn't like do something for him. I think we should honor all of our greats, no matter what. I mean, watch them off, run, walk off into the sunset one last time. I mean, I remember Cal Ripken's tour. I went and saw him play in Kansas City. He would stand on top of the dugout and sign autographs. 3 hours before the or for 2 hours before the game and then 2 hours after the game, Derry Jeter got the 2 from Wrigley Field's scoreboard and multiple other gifts. So, give Albert Pujols his due. WNBA is doing is doing that for Sue Bird, and rightfully so. Sue Bird is by far one of the greatest athletes of the 21st century. If not the late 20th century as well. I would to put her up against any dude, so it's the end of the show, wow, it's got to be the quickest show in a long time, filled your head full of knowledge, hopefully you can use this useless knowledge that I'm giving you in your real life, and if not, spread the word, spread the word far and wide to come listen to one guy with a mic, dingers and dunks. Where I bring the stats So you can bring the facts um, Also like I said earlier in the program uh, Follow me on TikTok At one guy with a mic Hit me up on Twitter At one guy with a mic Facebook At one guy with a mic uh, Go follow me on Twitch You know we gotta get Here's the deal I get to 50 followers on Twitch I will do more streaming Okay You can just do so much more when you have 50 followers on Twitch. Okay. I will make time to do more streaming on Twitch once I hit 50 followers. So that's your guys' goal. Give me the 50 followers on Twitch. I'm at 23 right now. And then we'll all do like Sunday morning chats, you know, where you bring your breakfast and we sit around and we just talk about the week, talk about your week, have a little bounce back, you know, get to know each other. Come friends okay uh follow me you know we're all on all your social media platforms oh yeah instagram for sure i mean i don't put a whole lot of photos on instagram but that might start as well we could get there um also uh i don't know i was gonna gonna say something but totally forgot it. boom mind blown i don't have something to say all right y'all have a great night <laughs> Great day, great afternoon. Um, Hit that subscribe button, hit the follow button, ring the bell so you're notified when these things drop, because I'm really trying to drop them on Sunday mornings, but sometimes my schedule, like this week, gets in the way, and here I am on a Sunday night dropping it for you. So, whenever you're listening to this, tell someone you love them. Later. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast, now streaming on your favorite music platform,